Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth, brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors. Hello, and welcome to McKinsey on Startups. I'm Daniel Eisenberg. Soaring IPOs, strong funding rounds, unprecedented demand for digital products and services around the world. In recent years, startups and venture capital have experienced a boom many say can only be matched by the original dot-com boom of the late 90s. But this amount of success has raised all sorts of questions about the future sustainability of these times, particularly whatever amounts to the next normal in a post-COVID world. On today's episode, we are going to explore those issues and more with two leading experienced venture capitalists who offer global perspectives. Roloff Botha is a partner at Sequoia Capital. In addition to leading the U.S. office and serving as one of the three stewards of the global Sequoia partnership, Roloff focuses on internet services and software investments. He has spent over 20 years building companies in Silicon Valley, including YouTube and Instagram. He's currently director of such companies as 23andMe, Bird, Eventbrite, Square, and Pendulum Therapeutics, among others. Before joining Sequoia, Roloff was the CFO of PayPal, leading their IPO in 2002 and the sale to eBay later that same year. PJ Parson is a general partner at Northzone and focuses on disruptive businesses and consumer internet health and fintech. Over the years, his investment portfolio has featured the likes of Spotify, iZettle, Avito, Price Runner, and Video Plaza, as well as currently such names as Fubo TV and Spring Health. Before joining Northzone in 2004, Parson ran his own investment firm. Roloff, PJ, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Roloff, let me start with you. As you look back on the last five years of the startup investing landscape, what do you think are the most important changes or developments? Interesting question. The most obvious one is what's happened in the last 12 months with COVID and the way that it's accelerated the future that Silicon Valley has been building. Uh, We've seen many companies sort of achieve in 2020 what we thought they might achieve in 2025 as the future got pulled forward. The specific things I think I'm excited about is that the the grip of big tech on consumer-facing companies seems to be slipping, either because of regulatory scrutiny or because they themselves are going to moderate their behavior. And then COVID itself has led to a whole raft of opportunities for companies to deliver services to consumers in a very differentiated way. Startups can just move so much faster, so much more nimbly than the big incumbents. And then the other big trend is cloud computing and the associated explosion of machine learning because of the abundance of data. So those would be the two key things. PJ, from your perspective and your vantage point, especially in Europe, what do you see as the big changes and developments? Yeah, I think the, the most important thing is that uh, Europe has, over the past 10 years, gone to a completely different place in terms of innovation, access to capital and access to talent. And uh, that has paved the way for, uh, for basically a new breed of entrepreneurs that are building companies with a you know, different mindset than in the past. And now I think over the past year, it's been so clear that uh, pretty much all the startups we look at, if they uh, address like one of the legacy markets that is typically dominated by like the financial industry or a retail or what have you, uh, pretty much all those startups are outperforming the legacy uh, uh, incumbents 
on pretty much all parts of the business. Uh, and, you know, starting just looking at the cost of capital is lower for them. They have more access to talent. Uh, they have uh, uh, typically lower customer acquisition costs and their operating costs and the operating structure is far more efficient and effective uh, to solve the needs of the modern consumer. So I, I see that in a way that I haven't seen in the past 25 years that the future belongs to the startup ecosystem. And they're scaling at a pace that I've never seen before. Just as a follow-up, PJ, Roloff was talking about this opportunity for consumer-focused startups to compete more effectively against the grip of big tech. Is that something you see also in Europe, not just against industry incumbents, but also tech industry incumbents? Is this sort of a new moment for startups to compete with those more established tech companies? So I, I think that probably one of the differences is that Silicon Valley is sort of uh, on the forefront of uh, developing new technology and, and new businesses and new business models. Whereas I think many of the very successful entrepreneurs coming out of the European ecosystem are you know, taking uh, existing markets and uh, addressing those with, uh, with more uh, with disruptive technology solutions that oh, in many cases have been proven in, in other settings. So it's a different version of innovation, I would say. And, uh, uh, and that has, um, I think, come of age lately. Big tech, obviously, that has a tremendous impact on, for instance, uh, cost of customer acquisition if you're a consumer company. It has a tremendous uh, uh, impact on how you market. But I think that is only a small part of the of the market that uh, these uh, European uh, promising companies are addressing, actually. Roloff, picking up on that, how do you view the pace of innovation globally right now? Where do you see up and coming hubs? And what are the next generation technologies you're most excited about? That last question is a dangerous one. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're asking me to have a crystal ball here. And, you know, right. I, uh, I want to be a weather forecaster and be 50% right. And we won't hold job, you maybe. <laughs> no, I think that, so I, I'm not negative on Silicon Valley's potential. I think Silicon Valley will continue to be a hub of incredible innovation. But the truth is that there are just many more places in the world where people can, can build interesting companies. And we're seeing this today in, you know, all across the U.S. I think in the last six months, we've made five investments in companies that are not based in Silicon Valley or not headquartered in Silicon Valley. Part of that is because of COVID. Part of that is because of the ability for technology to enable remote work. And, you know, opportunity is not as evenly distributed as talent. There's fantastic talent all over the world. And so we do look for these pockets of innovation. Now, there's a whole branch of economic theory around clustering and how industries tend to cluster because there's a very rapid exchange of ideas. I do wonder how much that changes in an era of you know, Zoom and communications technologies that make it effortless to communicate across the globe. But I still think you need this concentration of talent. And it's not just the obvious things about the engineering talent or the design talent or the product management talent. It's having real estate that is understanding of the trials and tribulations of startup companies, attorneys that understand how to work with startups, finance executives that you can recruit that understand startups. So there's a bunch of second order effects, but I'm very optimistic that you'll see a, an explosion of startups all around the world. Going back to your point about remote work and COVID, obviously the pros and cons of remote work have been widely covered and debated over the last year. What do you see as some of the more surprising or less discussed effects of this remote shift on startups specifically? It's a huge impact, I think. I think it's especially difficult for companies that are starting during COVID because so much is about building trust in a small company. 
right? You have a dozen, two dozen, three dozen employees. How do you recreate that sense of trust of being in a shared space? I remember what it was like to be in Palo Alto at PayPal when we were a burgeoning little company and the rapid exchange of ideas and the ability to quickly sort out misunderstandings, which I think is harder to do over Zoom because everything is scheduled. You want to give somebody a little bit of feedback and now suddenly it becomes a big deal instead of just a, a quick hallway conversation or a chat over coffee. So those are some of the challenges. The benefits, obviously, is the ability to recruit talent wherever that talent may be. And Silicon Valley has just become so expensive and mm. so competitive for top talent. And the big companies are so profitable that their ability to pay is you know, unrivaled. So it does enable these companies to, to, to grow all over the world. So Unity, which we first partnered with in 2009 for their first financing, they've got development offices in over a dozen countries around the world because they've been able to pick off great talent wherever it resides. And they've built it as a strength for them to be able to manage a remote and distributed workforce. So it, like anything, it's a double-edged sword. There are pluses and minuses, and you just have to you know, make do as best you can. PJ, are there changes that remote work is having on startups that you expect to remain permanent versus those that you think might be more fleeting? And by the same token, do you see any of these changes impacting VCs themselves and how they operate long-term? I think this was also in motion already before COVID. And there's a blockchain community. They almost took a pride of building companies where people hadn't met in real life. And also, if you ask a 25-year-old today, they have a bunch of friends that they've never met in real life. They've been gaming together. They've been, you know, forming real uh, authentic relationships that way. So I think it's also a generational thing that you can build trust in that way. You build it in a different way. So for those sort of peripheral markets, this is like gold because they have a tremendous challenge in, in recruiting top talent uh, if they require people to move to Trondheim in, in northern Norway or to, you know, uh, somewhere in, in the midst of Finland or what have you. But with this way, you can actually build a real good roster of talent regardless of where you're located. So I think it's here to stay. Uh, that said, I, I must say that also that for me, at least, a meeting in real life is unrivaled when it comes to real creative problem solving and discussion and, and sort of moving the relationships forward. And moving then to your question about how this has uh, impacted uh, the VC community, and I think it, it has had a tremendous sharp impact and fast impact insofar as that pretty much all the companies uh, that have an international mandate to invest have gone you know, super international uh, because they have all decided, we have all decided pretty much at the same time that we can make a substantial investment without meeting in person. And that I think has also substantially increased the competition for deal. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, we have, uh, uh, I think pretty much all the deals that we're looking at and opportunities, uh, regardless if it's in Europe or in the East Coast of, of, of uh, the US, uh, we meet maybe 10, 15 other VCs that would never have been in the running. Yeah, to pick up on, uh, on what um, PJ was saying, we have this saying now that all roadshows have become Zoom shows <laughs> because they're just so compressed. And it's extreme for the companies that went public last year. It was obviously the first time we'd witnessed this. The two-week traditional roadshow on a plane visiting a dozen cities you know, became a one-week event. Incredibly mm. efficient for the management team. And so that obviously is trickling down to earlier stages of financing. The risk in my mind, especially at the earlier stages, is that you're not just raising money, 
you're recruiting a business partner. You're recruiting right. an investor who's going to be with you on a journey. You know, like I mentioned earlier with Unity, Square, where I'm still on board. These are companies where I've served on the board for over a decade. Mm-hmm. And that's a big decision that you're making. And I, I do think it's important for entrepreneurs, while they can gain from the efficiency of running an online process, they should also not lose the intimacy of picking their business partner. That's really important. Roaf, how challenging is the diligence process, making decisions about who you want to become a business partner with in this virtual environment? This is the number one question we've wrestled with at our offsites over the last several months. Mm-hmm. So the, the goal in my mind is to make a high conviction decision whenever you make a decision. Right. A high conviction no or a high conviction yes. So the ways we've tried to do that given the compressed timelines are to have more of a prepared mindset is the first thing. So we probably developed two dozen landscapes, what we call them internally last year. And these aren't a you know PhD thesis. It's a couple of pages of somebody's thinking on a particular category that we then present to the rest of the partnership and everybody's attuned to an idea. You know, what's happening with the emerging data stack? What are the services in around cloud data warehousing that may emerge? That, that was one of the landscapes we developed. That then means that when you, we meet a company, we really have a framework in which to position them. And so that way we can make a much faster decision because we've already thought about it. Now, it doesn't mean that we come up with the precise nuances of the right idea. That's part of the brilliance that you look for in the founder. But that's one way we've done that. Then once you're in process, I think the biggest challenge is the inability to go visit somebody, to walk around their office, to get a feel for their culture. And so that's something we're missing. So you Mm. have to substitute for that by being even more diligent with customer references, of balance sheet references, having a network, say if it's an enterprise technology, a network of CIOs that we can call to understand how, what they think about this company's value proposition. And I'd say we've done a lot more on personal references than we may have in the past as a substitute for that in-person judgment. PJ, you talk about the increased competition, and there's obviously so much capital out there to deploy. What are you looking for in a startup these days? Are there things startups should be doing to win you over as an investor that are any different from previous days? Or is it still basically about the fundamentals. I think it's pretty much the same. You can really simplify the concepts here. We really like a team that has this capacity to really recruit world-class skills and to to really capture the the hearts and the minds of the people that really matter in their industry. You can diligence that even remotely, but you sort of feel it immediately when you sit in a room and talk to someone who who really knows their stuff. The second thing for us is that the market is big enough that it really can uh, create a massive uh, business over time. And, And the third one is that we would like to see a fundamentally differentiated product that that it has this capacity to really stand out in the noise that you don't have to market yourself through the noise that the product can actually stand with with a modest amount of marketing. So those three, you know, very simplistic arguments, I think, held five years ago and, and they still hold for me today. PJ, some people talk about a funding bubble. How do you see the massive amounts of capital in the industry impacting startup priorities and decision making? Yeah, I, I think there was this uh, concept uh, uh, that became very popular of uh, blitz scaling, the idea of extremely fast decision making and 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 building capabilities. Uh, the the flip side of that, there was a lot of sloppiness and you know poor company culture and stuff like that that started to happen. And I think now we're in a situation where we have you know even more money coming into the market, uh, but also very strong. KPIs that are have been produced thanks to a COVID situation. So, so you can also see a lot of 
false positives in this environment. And that that is not in for the long haul. So, so the challenge for us as investors, I think, is to see when you're building something really quickly with so much access to capital that is quality can differ vastly between different opportunities. Roloff, it sounds like it can be a little harder in this environment to delineate what is truly sustainable. Is that something you and your team have to think about a lot? Sure. If I can also maybe go back to the question you asked uh, PJ about mm-hmm. what we look for. Mm-hmm. I agree with him completely. You know, the, the business fundamentals are the same. The, the shape of it is different, just like the shape of businesses today are different from the ones we funded 20 years ago because the market has changed, the opportunity set has changed. Uh, the two questions I like to ask typically are who cares and why now? Uh-huh. <laughs> and who cares sounds a little whimsical, but the idea is, uh, what is the problem you're addressing and why do you have a compelling solution? And, and PJ talked about this. It has to be compelling. You want to build a, a product or a service where your customers find you. You don't have to go find them. And that's when you build something that's truly distinctive. Then the next question was obviously, is it a sustainable uh, advantage, which will dovetail with your next question. Um, and then why now is just what are the environmental reasons that make it propitious to start this company today? Big companies have so many advantages. You need this disruptive change. In terms of sustainable advantage and and, um, durability, I think it's something we wrestled with more in Q2 last year, Mm. right after COVID struck, because we had companies like DoorDash and Instacart who were benefiting tremendously in food delivery and grocery delivery. And the question obviously is, does it sustain or is this a blip? Uh, And conversely, we had companies like Airbnb and Eventbrite that obviously saw enormous decreases in revenue because of the curtailment of travel. I'd say given that COVID has continued for 12 months and I don't see it ending soon, I mean, we're likely in for at least another six to 12 months. Right. Yeah. It actually creates an environment for behavior change to become a set. And I think that is really interesting in terms of the opportunities we get. So, you know, uh, Tolerance for working over Zoom, for example. Maybe it's something you endured for a few months and you were looking forward to going back to the way things used to work. But now I think you've gotten used to it and you see the advantages, you see the disadvantages, but my guess is that Zoom is going to be a firmament and how people operate from now on. There's so many companies that have had to embrace inside sales instead of out, you know, direct sales because obviously their salespeople couldn't travel. And now they understand the benefits. There's services like Gong that help you record your phone calls uh, with customers, that help with training the rest of the sales team. You can analyze what works, what doesn't. And productivity has just been raised for everybody. And so I think a lot of these things are going to be much more durable than we may have imagined six months ago. So PJ, there's obviously continuing talk about valuation bubbles. When you look at the future or even the present, do you feel that there's enough economic value creation to justify the number of unicorns or even decacorns? Yeah, so that's a very, very difficult and dangerous question, of course. <laughs> of course. But, uh, but I, I think that there, there are uh, some signs that the entire market is, uh, is uh, sort of on uh, zero interest rate steroids. We have a situation where the valuations are high, no doubt about that. But then the question is, will they produce uh, returns uh, at the scale that we uh, were hoping for? And since at least most startups that we have looked at over the past 25 years, uh, if you look at their plans, very few of them actually get even close to their plans. Uh, Some of them do, and they become these uh, unicorns or decacorns or even more. But I think this time, it's like a change of scenery for the digitally powered, you know, innovation powered economy that, that they, they get more bang for their buck. They, 
they scale more. They create more uh, higher returns on their business models. And since many of these business models are are also going from sort of selling each unit to to maybe selling a subscription as a software as a service, for instance, that is also a totally different profile of earnings. So, so I think um, uh, there are certainly arguments for, for this to being frothy, absolutely. But I think also that there are companies that are growing at the rate now that we haven't seen before. And then Roloff, I don't know if you want to dive into another dangerous question. Briefly, your thoughts on, or not so briefly, up to you, on valuation, question, and economic value. I always think of valuation, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And when it comes to private valuations, you know, one person is placing a value on the company. It doesn't mean it's a, in a public setting. But of course, the public market is a, is a big barometer. I could tell you, I'm sure PJ experiences this. As soon as multiples in the public market trade up from 10 times revenue to 15 times revenue, I promise you the entrepreneur walking in wants to reset to the new public comparable. <laughs> so that's always the case. The challenge that we have is, do we, do we close the doors for business in an environment like this? And I think the answer to that is a resounding no. If you close your doors for business in 1999, you would have missed both Google and PayPal. And that would have been terrible decisions. And Sequoia invested in both. They seemed like expensive prices at the time, and it was. But those companies outperformed the market. So PayPal raised money at a $500 million valuation with zero revenue in March of 2000. We went public. We sold to eBay for $1.5 billion at the end of 2002. So it was a decent return for people who held then. And today, PayPal is worth about $300 billion. Google looked like an expensive investment with no revenue. We invested 10 million at 100 posts back in 1999. And today it's one of the you know, one point north of $1 trillion companies. So it, it just puts the burden on investors like PJ and myself to be very judicious. Do we believe this company is so distinctive that even if multiples compress, its performance in the long run will yield a great return? That's the question we have to face. And how much is talent an issue? Is there still a talent crunch? It is, but and part of it is because the menu has changed so dramatically. The menu of opportunity, because software is infiltrating so many industries, and PJ talked about this earlier, right? it's just all industries are now affected. It's not this little corner in Silicon Valley that builds technology for a small subset of sectors. It's woven into the fabric of everything we do as a society today. But when I was at PayPal, there were about 200 million people on the internet 20 years ago on dial-up by and large. Today you have billions and they have very high-speed connections. I mean, the shape of the opportunity fundamentally has changed. And that is both exciting, but then is a limiter. It explains partly, by the way, why we see many more McKinsey-founded companies than we did 20 years ago, because McKinsey people are trained in a whole variety of industries and they'll see interesting opportunities for new businesses. And that's fantastic, obviously. The problem is there are 25 million people on the planet that write software for a living. That is the bottleneck. And that's the reason I'm very excited for people to get retrained, for more and more people to study computer science, not to necessarily become computer scientists or software developers, but for them to bring software development expertise into everything they do. It's more more applied software uh, in their different domains. And PJ, do you see similar issues in Europe? Well, I, I think the, uh, in, the, in the European setting, most of the talent in the past has gone to sort of traditional industries, banks and consulting firms. And, and it's actually been very difficult to recruit to, to risky startups and, and the incentives in many 
European countries have been to uh, look for you know safe uh, um, revenue rather than the the potential upside of being part of an exciting startup. But that has changed uh, dramatically. So now I think the the access to the talent pool is fundamentally different. And what I think is uh, encouraging, though, although we only have 25 million software developers in the world, is that there is also a tremendous push now to increase. The, the level of abstraction with no code type of movements where people like you and me could actually start to code uh, or to build really exciting products. And I think that's the next level of uh, business development that's uh, going on, that we will have uh, almost like a, a box of Lego uh, that works for all of us to build a really cool businesses with uh, high performance, low cost and good customer um, you know, meeting the customer uh, desires. It's like you have these super skilled people, but then you have a big swath of people who have entrepreneurial talents and pretty much everyone uh, here could could build a startup. And uh, I think that has become apparent to many more people. So so I, I think that, yes, it's hard to find the right people, but there are plenty of people. That's, if I can pick on, on that for a second, that's why you've seen such a, a momentum behind tools-based companies in one mm-hmm. camp and why cloud computing has made such a big difference. So there's the, the famous story, I don't know if it's true or not, if it's an urban legend of, of Steve Jobs, talking about the importance of tools, that humans against many other wild creatures were one of the slowest creatures around. So many creatures can fly faster, run faster, but you put a human on a bicycle and suddenly that changes things dramatically because now you've put a tool at the disposal of the human. So the same things happen with software development. People who are trained become far more productive than they were before because of far more powerful tools that are available today. And cloud computing really simplifies things. No longer do you need to stand up your own physical co-location center. No longer do you need the database administrator because you can get a database as a service on one of the cloud vendors. All these things have abstracted the complexity and make it very easy for you if you have a business idea to be able to leverage technology to create a valuable company. And Roloff, does that help overcome any challenges of scaling? What do you see as the biggest obstacles that could prevent a promising startup from scaling? Well, in a very practical sense, the challenges we had in the early days at PayPal and YouTube were based on database constraints. So PayPal was built on a relational system. We used Oracle at the time. It was really expensive, by the way. Uh, I hated having to write the checks for that. But the relational system um, that Oracle had built was built for traditional legacy companies. It wasn't built for web scale, for people who had millions and, or tens of millions of customers. And so that was a bottleneck. At YouTube, they moved on to open source and they were using MySQL, also a relational database. But it too, that was the bottleneck that caused this, the site to struggle with scalability. Today, companies will stand up on AWS or Google Cloud or Azure and you might use a service like Mongo, or you might use RDS, or one of the other cloud-native database solutions that have wonderful auto-scaling capabilities. And so it's amazing that the technology now removes a lot of those technical reasons that impede growth. So now it comes a function of customer acquisition at some level. And you, as we discussed earlier, PJ pointed out, you know, you want to have a product that customers run to, <laughs> so you don't have to spend a lot of money marketing them. And then the scalability challenge is really a management issue. And again, that's part of why I think more and more McKinsey people and MBAs are having a big influence in many of these tech companies, because it's a management challenge. How do you motivate people? Are you making the right strategic decisions? 
one of the things I like to point out is that a company probably has two to three crucible decisions every single year, and the team needs to wrestle with those. These are big decisions that affect the ultimate outcome. They're not the everyday execution issues, which clearly matter, but you need to lift your head and focus on those. The challenge maybe is a little bit like with a teenager where their brain can grow very quickly, but they may still be a little bit clumsy physically. <laughs> so I think that you know the, the technology can move very quickly and the productivity of the engineering team is fabulous, but then you need to catch up with other parts of your business, your go-to-market capability, your sales function, marketing, product marketing, all these human resources, talent management, all these other <laughs> business issues also need to catch up uh, with the company's growth. I know we're coming up on time here, so I want to ask each of you just a concluding question. When you look at so many startups and pitches constantly, what do you see as the most common mistakes or pitfalls that startups are making as they try to raise capital? Well, some of the most common uh, mistakes, I would say, that you haven't really thought through how much you can achieve with with the money that you're uh, thinking about raising. And so it becomes almost like a a circular reference uh, in the the conversation, and uh, and then then it becomes uh, 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 like an unproductive uh, discussion on what what we would like to see more is like okay, what is the big next big inflection point that you can reach, uh, and how much capital do you need to get to that big inflection point where you can get access to uh, customers more easily, or or you can scale at a different speed, or. Or, or have you, or, or you, you can start to prove your business model, and uh, when when that is not thought through, then it basically uh, starts to sputter ri- really early in the conversation. So, so I, I uh, often uh, when I get the question, what well, you know, what do you need to, uh, uh, what what do you need to hear uh, in a, in a in a pitch? Well, I I want to see, you know, what what can you achieve in a reasonable time frame, and what is the kind of, of capital you need to do that uh, in order to sort of really be a different company at that point in time. And Roloff, when you look at mistakes or pitfalls? There are two that I think about. The first is substance versus form. You need to be authentic. You need to just tell your business story and explain what it is you do and try not to make it a performance art. So that's the first one. The second one is... Uh, choosing your business partner. I spoke about it earlier. Fundraising is is a a recruiting exercise for your future business partner. There are people like PJ or myself who have decades of experience who can help you see around corners. I'm sure that between the two of us, we've made more mistakes than any of these founders hopefully will make. And the goal is to learn from the mistakes we've made so you don't have to repeat them. And so you're recruiting a business partner and don't just take the highest valuation. Don't just take the easiest money. Find somebody who you trust who's going to be at your side, somebody who you're going to call on a Sunday night when something blows up at the company, when you have a squabble with your co-founder, when your business biggest business partner goes sour on you, who are you going to turn to for advice to help you navigate those? That is what you're looking for. And so to take the fundraising exercise a lot more seriously as a recruiting exercise. Well, I want to thank both of you, Roloff both of Sequoia, PJ Parson of North Zone. This has been a great, really insightful conversation. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. You're welcome. And I want to thank our listeners for tuning in to McKinsey on Startups. We hope you'll return for future episodes. This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback, so please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening.